Chapter Eighteen, Part Twelve of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Eighteen, The Kingship in France, Part Twelve. In spite of the want of ability and the weakness conspicuous in the government of Philip the Bold, the kingship in France had, in his reign, better fortunes than could have been expected. The death without children of his uncle Alfonso, St. Louis's brother, Count of Poitiers, and also Count of Toulouse, through his wife, Joan, daughter of Raymond the Seventh, put Philip in possession of those fair provinces. He at first possessed the countship of Toulouse merely with the title of Count, and as a private domain which was not definitely incorporated with the crown of France until a century later. Certain disputes arose between England and France in respect of this great inheritance, and Philip ended them by ceding Agenois to Edward I, King of England, and keeping Quercy. He also ceded to Pope Urban IV the county of Venaissin, with its capital Avignon, which the court of Rome claimed by virtue of a gift from Raymond VII, Count of Toulouse, and which, through a course of many disputes and vicissitudes, remained in possession of the Holy See until it was reunited to France on the 19th of February, 1797, by the Treaty of Tolentino. But notwithstanding these concessions, when Philip the Bold died at Perpignan, the 5th of October, 1285, on his return from his expedition in Aragon, the sovereignty in southern France, as far as the frontiers of Spain, had been won for the kingship of France. A Flemish chronicler, a monk at Edgemont, describes the character of Philip the Bold's successor in the following words. A certain king of France, also named Philip, eaten up by the fever of avarice and cupidity, and that was not the only fever inherent in Philip the Fourth, called the handsome, he was a prey also to that of ambition, and above all to that of power. When he mounted the throne, at seventeen years of age, he was handsome, as his nickname tells us, cold, taciturn, harsh, brave at need, but without fire or dash, able in the formation of his designs, and obstinate in prosecuting them by craft or violence, by means of bribery or cruelty, with wit to choose and support his servants, passionately vindictive against his enemies, and faithless and unsympathetic towards his subjects, but from time to time taking care to conciliate them, either by calling them to his aid in his difficulties or his dangers, or by giving them protection against other oppressors. Never, perhaps, was king better served by circumstances or more successful in his enterprises, but he is the first of the Capetians who had a scandalous contempt for rights, abused success, and thrust the kingship in France upon the high road of that arrogant and reckless egotism which is sometimes compatible with ability and glory, but which carries with it in the germ, and sooner or later brings out in full bloom, the native vices and fatal consequences of arbitrary and absolute power." Away from his own kingdom, in his dealings with foreign countries, Philip the Handsome had good fortune, which his predecessors had lacked, and which his successors lacked still more. Through William the Conqueror's settlement in England, and Henry II's marriage with Eleanor of Aquitaine, the kings of England had, by reason of their possessions and their claims in France, become the natural enemies of the kings of France, and war was almost incessant between the two kingdoms. But Edward I, King of England, ever since his accession to the throne in 1272, had his ideas fixed upon, and his constant efforts directed towards, the conquest of the countries of Wales and Scotland, so as to unite under his sway the whole island of Great Britain. 
The Welsh and the Scotch, from prince to peasant, offered an energetic resistance in defence of their independence, and it was only after seven years' warfare, from 1277 to 1284, that the conquest of Wales by the English was accomplished, and the style of Prince of Wales became the title of the heir to the throne of England. Scotland, in despite of dissensions at home, made a longer and a more effectual resistance, and though it was reduced to submission, it was not conquered by Edward I. Two national heroes, William Wallace and Robert Bruce, excited against him insurrections which were often triumphant and always being renewed, and after having, during eighteen years of strife, maintained a precarious dominion in Scotland, Edward I died in 1307, without having acquired the sovereignty of it. But his persevering ardour in this twofold enterprise kept him out of war with France. He did all he could to avoid it, and when the pressure of circumstances involved him in it for a time, he was anxious to escape from it. Being summoned to Paris by Philip the Handsome in 1286, to swear fealty and homage on account of his domains in France, he repaired thither with a good grace, and on his knees before his suzerain, repeated to him the solemn form of words. I become your liegeman for the lands I hold of you this side the sea, according to the fashion of the peace which was made between our ancestors. The conditions of this peace were confirmed, and by a new treaty between the two princes, the annual payment of fifty thousand dollars to the King of England, in exchange for his claims over Normandy, was guaranteed to him, and Edward renounced his pretensions to Kersi in consideration of a yearly sum of three thousand livres of Tours. In twelve ninety two, a quarrel and some hostilities at sea between the English and Norman commercial navies grew into a war between the two kings, and it dragged its slow length along for four years in the southwest of France. Edward made an alliance in the north with the Flemish, who were engaged in a deadly struggle with Philip the Handsome, and thereby lost Aquitaine for a season but in 1296 a truce was concluded between the belligerents, and though the importance of England's commercial relations with Flanders decided Edward upon resuming his alliance with the Flemish, when in 1300 war broke out again between them and France, he withdrew from it three years afterwards, and made a separate peace with Philip the Handsome, who gave him back Aquitaine. In 1306 fresh differences arose between the two kings, but before they had rekindled the torch of war, Edward I died at the opening of a new campaign in Scotland, and his successor, Edward II, repaired to Bologna, where he, in his turn, did homage to Philip the Handsome for the Duchy of Aquitaine, and espoused Philip's daughter Isabel, reputed to be the most beautiful woman in Europe. In spite, then, of frequent interruptions, the reign of Edward I was on the whole a period of peace between England and France, being exempt, at any rate, from premeditated and obstinate hostilities. In southern France, at the foot of the Pyrenees, Philip the Handsome, just as his father Philip the Bold was, during the first years of his reign, at war with the kings of Aragon, Alfonso III and Jaime II, but these campaigns, originating in purely local quarrels, or in the ties between the descendants of St. Louis and of his brother, Charles of Anjou, king of the two Sicilies, rather than in furtherance of the general interests of France, were terminated in 1291 by a treaty concluded at Tarascon between the belligerents, and have remained without historical importance. The Flemish were the people with whom Philip the Handsome engaged in and kept up, during the whole of his reign, with frequent alternations of defeat and success, a really serious war. In the thirteenth century, Flanders was the most populous and the richest country in Europe. She owed the fact to the briskness of her manufacturing and commercial undertakings, not only amongst her neighbors, but throughout southern and eastern Europe, in Italy, in Spain, in Sweden, in Norway, in Hungary, 
in Russia, and even as far as Constantinople, where, as we have seen, Baldwin I, Count of Flanders, became, in 1204, Latin Emperor of the East. Cloth, and all manner of woolen stuffs, were the principal articles of Flemish production, and it was chiefly from England that Flanders drew her supply of wool, the raw material of her industry. Thence arose between the two countries commercial relations which could not fail to acquire political importance. As early as the middle of the twelfth century, several Flemish towns formed a society for founding in England a commercial exchange, which obtained great privileges, and under the name of the Flemish Hans of London, reached rapid development. The merchants of Bruges had undertaken the initiative in it, but soon all the towns of Flanders, and Flanders was covered with towns, Ghent, Lille, Ypres, Courtrai, Ferns, Alost, St. Omer, and Douy, entered the Confederation, and made unity as well as extension of liberties in respect of Flemish commerce the object of their joint efforts. Their prosperity became celebrated, and its celebrity gave it increase. It was a burgher of Bruges who was governor of the Hans of London, and he was called the Count of the Hans. The fair of Bruges, held in the month of May, brought together traders from the whole world. Thither came for exchange, says the modern and most enlivened historian of Flanders, Baron Curvin de Ledenhove, Histoire de Flandre, page 300, the produce of the north and the south, the riches collected in the pilgrimages to Novogorod, and those brought over by caravans from Samarkand and Baghdad, the pitch of Norway and the oils of Andalusia, the furs of Russia and the dates from the Atlas, the metals of Hungary and Bohemia, the figs of Granada, the honey of Portugal, the wax of Morocco, and the spice of Egypt, whereby, says an ancient manuscript, no land is to be compared in merchandise to the land of Flanders. At Ypres, the chief centre of cloth fabrics, the population increased so rapidly that, in 1247, the sheriffs prayed Pope Innocent IV to augment the number of parishes in their city, which contained, according to their account, about two hundred thousand persons. So much prosperity made the Counts of Flanders very puissant lords, called the Black, Countess of Flanders and Hanault, from 1244 to 1280, was extremely rich, says a chronicler, not only in lands but in furniture, jewels, and money, and, as is not customary with women, she was right liberal and right sumptuous, not only in her largesses, but in her entertainments, and whole manner of living, insomuch that she kept up the state of queen rather than countess. Nearly all the Flemish towns were strongly organized communes, in which prosperity had won liberty, and which became, before long, small republics sufficiently powerful, not only for the defence of their municipal rights against the counts of Flanders, their lords, but for offering an armed resistance to such of the sovereigns of their neighbours as attempted to conquer them or to trammel them in their commercial relations, or to draw upon their wealth by forced contributions or by plunder. Philip Augustus had begun to have a taste of their strength during his quarrels with Count Ferdinand of Portugal, whom he had made Count of Flanders by marrying him to the Countess Joan, heiress of the countship, and whom, after the Battle of Bouvines, he had confined for thirteen years in the Tower of the Louvre. Philip the Handsome laid himself open to and was subjected by the Flemings to still rougher experiences. At the time of the latter king's accession to the throne, Guy de Dampierre, of noble Champagny's origin, had been for five years Count of Flanders, as heir to his mother, Marguerite the Second. He was a prince who did not lack courage, or, on great emergency, high-mindedness and honour, but he was ambitious, covetous, as parsimonious as his mother had been munificent, and above all concerned to get his children married in a manner conducive to his own political importance. 
He had, by his two wives, Matilda of Bethune and Isabel of Luxembourg, nine sons and eight daughters, offering free scope for combinations and connections, in respect of which Guy de Dampierre was not at all scrupulous about the means of success. He had a quarrel with his son-in-law, Florence V, Count of Holland, to whom he had given his daughter Beatrice in marriage, and another of his sons-in-law, John I, Duke of Brabant, married to another of his daughters, the Princess Marguerite, offered himself as mediator in the difference. The two brothers-in-law went together to see their father-in-law, but on their arrival Guy de Dampierre seized the person of the Count of Holland, and would not release him until the Duke of Brabant offered to become prisoner in his place, and found himself obliged, in order to obtain his liberty, to pay his father-in-law a tough ransom. It was not long before Guy himself suffered from the same sort of iniquitous surprise that he had practised upon his sons-in-law. In 1293 he was secretly negotiating the marriage of Philippa, one of his daughters, with Prince Edward, eldest son of the King of England. Philip the Handsome, having received due warning, invited the Count of Flanders to Paris, to take counsel with him and the other barons touching the state of the kingdom. At first Guy hesitated, but he dared not refuse, and he repaired to Paris with his sons John and Guy. As soon as he arrived he bashfully announced to the king the approaching union of his daughter with the English prince, protesting that he would never cease for all that to serve him loyally, as every good and true man should serve his lord. "'In God's name, Sir Count,' said the enraged king, "'this thing will never do. You have made alliance with my foe, without my wit. Wherefore you shall abide with me.' And he had him, together with his sons, marched off at once to the Tower of the Louvre, where Guy remained for six months, and did not then get out save by leaving as hostage to the king of France his daughter Philippa herself, who was destined to pass in this prison her young and mournful life. On once more entering Flanders, Count Guy oscillated for two years between the king of France and the king of England, submitting to the exactions of the former, at the same time that he was privily renewing his attempts to form an intimate alliance with the latter. Driven to extremity by the haughty severity of Philip, he at last came to a decision, concluded a formal treaty with Edward I, affianced to the English crown prince the most youthful of his daughters, Isabel of Flanders, youngest sister of Philippa, the prisoner in the Tower of the Louvre, and charged two ambassadors to go to Paris, as the bearers of the following declaration. Every one doth know in how many ways the King of France has misbehaved towards God and justice. Such is his might and his pride, that he doth acknowledge not above himself, and he hath brought us to the necessity of seeking allies who may be able to defend and protect us. By reason whereof we do charge our ambassadors to declare and say, for us and from us, to the above said king, that because of his misdeeds and defaults of justice, we hold ourselves abound, absolved, and delivered from all bonds, alliances, obligations, conventions, subjections, services, and dues whereby we may have been bounden toward him. This meant war and it was prompt and sharp on the part of the king of France, slow and dull on the part of the king of England, who was always more bent upon the conquest of Scotland than upon defending, on the continent, his ally the Count of Flanders. In June 1297 Philip the Handsome, in person, laid siege to Lille, and on the 13th of August Robert, Count of Artois, at the head of the French chivalry, gained at Ferns, over the Flemish army, a victory which decided the campaign. Lille capitulated. The English reinforcements arrived too late, and served no other purpose but that of inducing Philip to grant the Flemings a truce for two years. A fruitless attempt was made, with the help of Pope Boniface VIII, to change the truce into a lasting peace. The very day on which it expired, Charles, Count of Valois, and brother of Philip the Handsome, entered Flanders with a powerful army, 
surprised Douay, passed through Bruges, and on arriving at Ghent, gave a reception to its magistrates, who came and offered him the keys. The burghers of the towns of Flanders, says a chronicler of the age, were all bribed by gifts or promises from the kings of France, who would never have dared to invade their frontiers had they been faithful to their count. Guy de Dampierre, hopelessly beaten, repaired with two of his sons and fifty-one of his faithful knights to the camp of the Count of Valois, who gave him a kind reception and urged him to trust himself to the king's generosity, promising at the same time to support his suit. Guy set out for Paris with all his retinue. On approaching the city palace which was the usual residence of the kings, he espied at one of the windows Queen Joan of Navarre, who took a supercilious pleasure in gazing upon the humiliation of the victim of defeat. Guy drooped his head, and gave no greeting. When he was close to the steps of the palace, he dismounted from his horse, and placed himself and all his following at the mercy of the king. The Count of Valois said a few words in his favour, but Philip, cutting his brother short, said, addressing himself to Guy, I desire no peace with you, and if my brother has made any engagement with you, he had no right to do so. And he had the Count of Flanders taken off immediately to Compiègne, to a strong tower, such that all could see him, and his comrades were distributed amongst several towns, where they were strictly guarded. The whole of Flanders submitted, and its principal towns, Ypres, Audenard, Termonde, and Cassel, fell successively into the hands of the French. Three of the sons of Count Guy retired to Namur. The constable, Raoul of Nesla, was lieutenant for the King of France in his newly won country of Flanders. Next year, in the month of May, 1301, Philip determined to pay his conquest a visit, and the queen his wife accompanied him. There is never any lack of galas for conquerors. After having passed in state through Tournay, Courtrai, Adunard, and Ghent, the king and queen of France made their entry into Bruges. All the houses were magnificently decorated. On platforms covered with the richest tapestry thronged the ladies of Bruges. There was nothing but haberdashery and precious stones. Such an array of fine dresses, jewels, and riches excited a woman's jealousy in the queen of France. There is none but queens, quoth she, to be seen in Bruges. I had thought that there was none but I who had a right to royal state. But the people of Bruges remained dumb, and their silence scared Philip the Handsome, who vainly attempted to attract a concourse of people about him by the proclamation of brilliant jousts. These galas, says the historian Villainy, who was going through Flanders at this very time, were the last whereof the French knew aught in our time, for Fortune, who till then had shown such favour to the King of France, on a sudden turn her wheel, and the cause thereof lay in the unrighteous captivity of the innocent maid of Flanders, and in the treason whereof the Count of Flanders and his sons had been the victims. There were causes, however, for this new turn of events of a more general and more profound character than the personal woes of Flemish princes. James de Chiltillen, the governor assigned by Philip the Handsome to Flanders, was a greedy oppressor of it. The municipal authorities, whom the victories or the gold of Philip had demoralized, became the objects of popular hatred, and there was an outburst of violent sedition. A simple weaver, obscure, poor, undersized, and one-eyed, but valiant and eloquent in his Flemish tongue, one Peter Deconing, became the leader of revolt in Bruges. Accomplices flocked to him from nearly all the towns of Flanders, and he found allies amongst their neighbors. In 1302 war again broke out, but it was no longer a war between Philip the Handsome and Guy de Dampierre, it was a war between the Flemish communes and their foreign oppressors. Everywhere resounded the cry of insurrection, our bucklers and our friends for the line of Flanders, death to all Walloons. 
Philip the Handsome precipitately levied an army of sixty thousand men, says Villany, and gave the command of it to Count Robert of Artois, the hero of Ferns. The forces of the Flemings amounted to no more than twenty thousand fighting men. The two armies met near Courtrai. The French chivalry were full of ardor and confidence, and the Italian archers in their service began the attack with some success. "'My lord,' said one of his knights to the Count of Artois, "'these knaves will do so well that they will gain the honor of the day, and if they alone put an end to the war, what will be left for the noblesse to do?' "'Attack, then,' answered the prince. Two grand attacks succeeded one another, the first under the orders of the constable Raoul of Nesle, the second under those of the Count of Artois in person. After two hours' fighting, both failed against the fiery national passion of the Flemish communes, and the two French leaders— the constable and the count of Artois, were left, both of them, lying on the field of battle amidst twelve or fifteen thousand of their dead. "'I yield me, I yield me,' cried the count of Artois. "'But we understand not thy lingo,' ironically answered in their own tongue, the Flemings who surrounded him, and he was forthwith put to the sword. Too late to save him galloped up a noble ally of the insurgents, Guy of Namur. "'From the top of the towers of our monastery,' says the abbot of St. Martin's of Tournay, we could see the French flying over the roads, across fields and through hedges, in such numbers that the sight must have been seen to be believed. There were, in the outskirts of our town and in the neighboring villages, so vast a multitude of knights and men-at-arms tormented with hunger, that it was a matter horrible to see. They gave their arms to get bread. End of chapter 18, part 12